Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American College of Trial Lawyers' new podcast. I am Amy Gunn, a fellow from St. Louis, and today I have the great privilege of spending some time with Joan Lukey, a partner with Choate Hall and Stewart in Boston, where she is the practice leader of the Complex Trial and Appellate Litigation Group. She, of course, is also a very honored past president of the ACTL and the Boston Bar Association and the current president of the ACTL Foundation. Joan's accomplishments are minied and varied. She's a graduate of Boston College Order of the Coif. She also won the moot court competition where she was named the best oral advocate, the first woman to win that honor in the competition's 25 years. She began her career at Hale and Door, which is now Wilmer Hale, where she was the sole female associate in her class that year and only one of three at the firm. She then spent time at Ropes and Gray, and of course now is at Choate, really doing important work for her clients, as well as the community. Interestingly, Joan has shared the stage with Justice Anthony Kennedy, and I'm going to ask her about that as the time goes on. She's also tried over 100 jury trials and many arbitrations, as well as over 60 appellate arguments at the state and federal level. She has represented clients such as Patricia Cornwell and Dan Brown, as well as a recipient of the Burton Awards, a national prize for distinguished legal writing. She's also written a novel, A Fiduciary Duty, and has twice served as a special assistant attorney general. There are so many more things, Joan, that I could say about you and your lauded career. And I thank you very much for joining us today as one of our first interviews for this new podcast for the college. We are very thankful to you and that you're here today to share some of your wisdom and stories and advice. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm actually sitting out on the deck at our home in Marion, looking out over Buzzards Bay. It's a beautiful day, a summer day. And uh, I couldn't be happier, but if you hear some strange background noises like motorboats going by or the lawnmower over at the golf course, don't be too surprised. Thank you so much for that. I'm a little bit jealous sitting in my office (laughs) in St. Louis. It's going to be about 95 today, but I'm very glad to hear how well you're doing and enjoying a beautiful day. Joan, I'd like to start at the beginning because I think very chronologically, I've read that you were a for some time thinking about a career as an actress. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. I look back at it and smile now, but when I was in college, I did seriously think that I wanted to be a theater actress that is on stage, not a movie star. Uh, And rather early on in my educational career in the field of drama, I had a very kind, older drama teacher, professor, who pulled me aside and said to me, you know, you're quite a talented actress, but you will never be the lead. You would always be the character role. And you're an attractive young woman, but you're not going to make it in the movies on your looks. You should think about a field where you can use your uh, talents in presenting to others, but not in the theater. And I wasn't in the slightest offended by that. I appreciated his honesty. 
I began looking around and thinking about it. And by my junior year in college, I knew that I wanted to be a trial lawyer, not a lawyer, but a trial lawyer. And that's the field that I chose. And I couldn't be happier that I did. I love hearing that background and particularly that as such a young person, you knew exactly what you wanted to do and were able to parlay that passion for acting into really what I consider to be a pretty similar career as a trial lawyer, because that's what we do. We oftentimes are performers. But what was it about trial law at that age that you understood could parlay your love for acting into a profession that wasn't acting? It's probably related to something very unrealistic, but I was a huge fan of the original Perry Mason television series starring Raymond Burr. And I, of course, was naive enough to think that the courtroom actually was, as it was portrayed, on Perry Mason. That looked like acting because it was. I saw the connection with my love of presenting, of being in front of people. I set out to be a trial lawyer. And as you just mentioned, Amy, I found that, in fact, the ability to perform the love of being on one's feet in front of an audience was very, very closely connected to presenting to a jury in a regular courtroom. And that's what I did. Jury trials remain my favorite. As we all know, the number of them is diminishing. But I'm delighted that the great bulk of my career has existed at a time when jury trials were still out there and we could still do them. Part of what I learned, Joan, when I was doing my research, I came across a performance on the C-SPAN website in 1996. And lo and behold, there's Joan Lukey on stage. Can you tell us about that? Oh, that was so much fun. It's so long ago now, isn't it? I didn't realize it was all the way back in 1996. (laughs) Time flies. You're talking (laughs) about a rendition of the murder trial of Polonius from Shakespeare's Hamlet. And it was a total sellout because Justice Anthony Kennedy was presiding. The presentation was being made as a charitable event. The funds that were raised was for legal charities. Uh, And I was the defense counsel for Polonius. So we didn't have a script in the way we would if we were actually presenting the play. But we were required to be very familiar with what the plot line of Hamlet actually was and what the character traits of the various characters involved were. So we went through, I think it was about a three-hour trial, very much in the mode of a criminal murder trial. Except that at the end, the jury, which was selected from a bunch of our peers who had volunteered, claimed to be deadlocked. I'm sure that it would not have ended that way since the evidence against Polonius was extensive, but claimed to be deadlocked. So there was neither winner nor loser. And Justice Kennedy declared us all to be the winners. But the best part of the experience was the time we got to spend with him. He was extremely generous with that time. And it was just a wonderful experience all around. And it did bring me back to my days in college of being a short-term drama major. And how did that come about? Was it part of the legal organization? Did you volunteer for this position where you asked? It's such a fascinating thing to watch. And I just really loved it, especially the part where it was a charitable endeavor. I just thought that was wonderful. 
the charitable organization that was running the event was able to persuade a local theater to allow us to use their stage. They then reached out to various lawyers in town to play the different roles, and I was very pleased. They asked me to participate. I think it was pretty well known in the community that I was interested in drama. So it was a fun event, and I was glad to be part of it. I will tell you that when I first viewed the performance, I made note that you were the only woman on the stage. Was that something that you were aware of at the time? No, actually, I'm glad you mentioned it. I don't think I ever realized it. It wouldn't have been abundantly apparent to me that all of the participants, that is the folks actually playing roles on the stage, were male, because the jury was seated in the theater as well on the stage, and that was at least half women. So I didn't really think of it at all. I'm kind of happy to hear that, actually, that, <laughs> that role. <laughs> well, you've been the first in many things in your career, including the first woman president of the ACTL. What I want to ask you about that is, what did it mean to you to be the first woman president of our organization? You know, it's hard to even put it into words. It meant great deal to me. Just to be the president without being the first woman president would have been the crowning glory of my professional career. To be the first woman president is, as one of my friends said, something they can never take away from you. <laughs> no one else can ever be first. So it meant a lot. And as I said when I was installed as president all those years ago in 2009, it was a bit of a burden to carry because I felt if I stumbled, it was as if all women stumbled. And so I was determined to be as good as I could be. That didn't necessarily mean that I could be as good as some of my predecessors or successors, male or female, but I just had to be the best that I could be. And I gave it my all, and I walked away at the end feeling that I had accomplished that goal of being the best that I could be. Well, I appreciate you for that role very much. Was there ever a time when people expressed to you how important it was to them that you were the first woman president of the organization? You know, Amy, to this day, I still hear that, and it is mostly from young women who are being inducted as new fellows. So as you probably recall from the uh, annual and spring meetings, when the oath is being given, all of the new fellows are up on stage and the past presidents line up facing them so that our backs are actually to the rest of the audience. When it is done and everybody starts to applaud and cheer for the new fellows, they come forward and the past presidents walk toward them and we begin shaking their hands. And to this day, the women will always be the first to come towards me and I toward them. Mm -hmm. And very often they will say to me, thank you. Thank you for being the first, for making it easier for those of us who follow. And that means a lot. It means a lot cumulatively over the years. It has made it even more important to me that I served in that role as the first woman. And that will always be the crown and glory for me professionally. There are still opportunities, and I'm amazed at this, and I think it could be a, a sad commentary, but there still are very many opportunities for women to be the first 
in an organization, in a project, in a, you name it. There are still many opportunities for that. What advice would you give uh, young women, whether lawyers or not, to give them the confidence and the strength to pursue those goals, to be the first? I'd like to think today that that confidence and that awareness would be more common, but I agree with you that it's surprising that there are still uh, opportunities to be a first as a woman. I would simply say every individual, male and female, should always be striving to be the very best that she or he can be in their chosen field. And that you shouldn't go through life thinking of yourself based on your gender and thinking I can be the best woman, but rather I can be the best at whatever it is you're trying to do. And if you focus that way and if you really want something, it's truly amazing how often it can be accomplished. But I think it is easier for women today to put that aside and that women should do it. They should not be focused on their gender but focused on being the best they can be at what they're doing. And I know that in your career, Joan, you have worked very hard. And like many people, men and women, do you believe that hard work and perseverance can really allow you to reach your goals? I absolutely do. I mean, if you had asked me as I was coming out of high school um, in Wareham, Massachusetts, a long, long time ago, whether I thought that I would end up being in a position like president of the American College of Trial Lawyers, I would have been astounded and laughed at you. I didn't have that sense that I could do whatever I wanted to do, but my parents were constantly working at instilling that in me, particularly my late father, who was an army officer. He always, always reminded me that you can be what you want to be if you're willing to do the work, if you're really willing to apply yourself. It took me a while, I think, to understand what it meant to really do the work as a lawyer. And over the course of my career, I think I've worked harder and harder all the time at getting better. Instead of reaching a point where I said, all right, this is my plateau, I'm done, I'm striving even now to try to get better all the time. And I hope that that will continue until the day some years down the road when I say, okay, it's time to retire. I want to keep doing this. I want to keep believing it. And one of the things that I most like doing in my role at the firm, heading a practice group, is to instill in my young lawyers, men and women, but maybe I focus a little more on the women, that if you work really, really hard, and if you really, really want it, you can achieve your goal. If your goal is to be the best in a particular field, you can do it. Or at least, and this is just as much something to be proud of, you can be your best in that field. You can reach your full potential. Anytime any of us reaches our full potential, our individual and personal full potential, we should be so proud of ourselves that there should never be any second thoughts about whether you could have done something better or been someone better. If you really feel you've done the best you could do with your tools, then pat yourself on the back and be content. I love that. I love that advice. It is inspirational 
particularly on on days when you're not really sure what you're doing or why you're doing it, which I think we've all had. So <laughs> they're wonderful words to recall in moments like that. And I know that you have worked very hard and have been very successful. And I want to ask you about some of those successes. Can you share with us your most memorable trial? You know, there are several that I would put on a very high plateau, but there's one that sticks out for me for some very special reasons that goes back to around 2005 or six. It happened during the period of the Patriots' first Super Bowl of the modern era, as we call <laughs> it, meaning the, the Brady years before Tom left us. It was that year, so it's 2005 or six. And I was representing a plaintiff Usually my practice is for defendants, but it was an individual, a woman doctor, who had been fired from her position in a very prominent and excellent local hospital when our local newspaper had incorrectly reported that she had signed an overdose order in a cancer trial, a clinical trial, that killed a reporter, mm. uh, actually the health columnist. Talk about an unusual constellation of circumstances. She had not been the person who signed it. That was learned much later. It was an innocent error by a young doctor. In any event, I was representing her in a lawsuit against the newspaper and against the hospital. It was hard fought, but extraordinarily civil. There were two lawyers actually representing the newspaper who became two of my closest friends with that as a platform. That was where we met, and that's when we became close friends because it was a month-long trial. We won. We won what was then the largest libel verdict in the state and a comparable verdict against the hospital. On appeal, the verdict against the newspaper was taken away because the court had allowed certain inferences to be drawn that weren't supposed to be drawn but the rest of the verdict stood all the way through. They attempted to get to appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, which didn't work. That case meant so much to me because the woman doctor involved was a woman named Dr. Lois A. Ash, one of the most admirable people I have ever known. She devoted her life to cancer research in a way that most of us couldn't even imagine. Her sister had suffered from a horrible form of cancer and survived it, but with issues from it. And Lois cared about nothing more than trying to prevent people from dying from cancer. The newspaper's error was an innocent error, but the fact that the hospital had terminated her, knowing that she had not actually signed the order, she was not the one, she was the head of the protocol, but she had nothing to do with the overdose. Mm. Being able to help her through that, and she moved on to an excellent career elsewhere, that stays with me and it will stay with me for my whole life. If I had done nothing else in my career, I would look back and say, all of it was worth it to have helped a person like Lois A. Ash, because she is so worthy of being helped and of being given full credit for the wonderful human being she is. And I think that is such a gift, right? It, it's such a gift to have entered into that case. And I'm sure at the beginning, you weren't sure how this case was going to go. You weren't sure if you were going to be able to be successful for Dr. A. Ash. 
But it sounds like what you knew in your heart was that you wanted to use your talent and your compassion to try to do what you could for her. That's absolutely right. And let me say both of those institutions are actually really fine institutions. The newspaper made a mistake. The reporter is no longer with them. It was a reporter's error. The hospital got caught up in the pressure of the moment because the newspaper, of course, was running the story every day because the person who had died was their health columnist. So these were really good institutions that perhaps made some very unfortunate decisions. And being able to help Lois go on with her life and career without a stain or a blemish on it because of the recognition that the mistakes were somebody else's was a wonderful gift. That's the right word. To me, it was a wonderful gift. In your role as an attorney, particularly as a trial attorney, there are days when we have success and then there are days when maybe not so much. That's the nature of the game. And you've described in Dr. A. Ash's story a day where it was a very powerful tool that you had. Are there days, though, that you can recall in your career where you felt not so much powerful based on your abilities and the way the law interacts with the facts, but rather you felt powerless? And can you tell us about that? I can. There are a couple, but the one that probably will always stick out in my mind is this. I was representing a city, a prominent city well-known in the Boston area which had been charged by a former employee with race discrimination in connection with her termination. And the city manager was the person who had made the decision. It happened to be a decision that he had made sitting in a room with several people, including me. So I actually knew circumstances of what had happened. And no matter how I tried at the jury trial of that case, being unable, of course, to give testimony as to what I knew personally uh, about the angst behind making the decision and the, the true reasons for the decision, I could not prevent the inference from being drawn that the jury drew in finding against the city and blaming the city manager or race discrimination. I am blessed to live in an area that is very conscious of the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion. For decades, that has been the case, even though Boston has had a reputation in certain quarters. And when that verdict came back, I felt utterly devastated because I personally knew the truth, probably the only time in my career that I was handling a trial where I had been part of the decision that was the subject of the trial. Not that I had had any, I had no voice in making the decision, but in hearing the facts and understanding what was happening, a decision that was made in substantial part because almost the same circumstances had presented a couple of years earlier involving a male white employee as opposed to a female black employee. And there was no justification for treating her differently. And so I heard the verdict, knew the verdict to be wrong, and knew that there was nothing we could do about it. And that's one of those moments when you feel utterly powerless. 
it just stays with you forever. It haunted me for years. Mm-hmm. It was a long time ago. Haunted me. But the jury system can't be perfect. It's just by far the best system that we have. Mistakes will be made by jurors, just as mistakes are made by lawyers, judges, and people in every walk of life. It sounds like there was quite a bit of loss of, I don't want to say confidence in the jury system, because I've certainly been there too, and, and not quite in that circumstance, but definitely have felt like the jury got it wrong. What did you do to feel better about that? What I learned from that is that you just have to pick yourself up, go right back into the office the next day and go on. Yeah. And after that, there was never any verdict one way or the other that either made me feel as high or as low as I felt in the low side that day. It was a recognition that all we can do is the best we can do. And if it isn't good enough, we just have to pick ourselves up and move on. And I did. Uh, I've had a situation like that where you feel like it just didn't go the correct way, the way of justice. And I think as trial lawyers, we have to believe in the system and we have to believe in the idea that justice will be done. But the reality is that sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Just as you said, Joan, we pick ourselves up and we continue to do our job. We continue to represent clients in the very best way that we can and not let one situation allow us to lose faith in the jury system. I see an increasing attack on the jury system and maybe even more importantly, not so much an attack on the jury system, but that there just aren't that many jury trials going on. And certainly we can put COVID aside because our courts have been largely closed. What do you see for the jury system going forward? Do you see it changing? Well, what we are seeing is that there are fewer and fewer jury trials. So we look at that and we say to ourselves, why? One of the easy answers is they can be very costly because the lead up tends to be very lengthy. But I do think what has happened over the years is that Individuals who are decision makers in corporate or institutional settings have experienced a single instance, like the one that I described a moment ago involving the municipality, where justice was not done. Let's face it, that's going to happen once every, what, 20, 50, 100 times. We don't know. The result will actually be incorrect. And if you have a sophisticated decision maker at an institution, they may say, I'm never doing that again. And we see the increasing use of arbitration clauses. I think that trend will not reverse itself. I want to ask you, throughout your career, how have you approached rainmaking and acquiring business? And what's made you so successful? Relationships. When I talk to the younger attorneys in my firm about rainmaking, I always say relationships, relationships, relationships. For those of us attempting to build a practice in the legal profession, it's a little bit like real estate professionals saying location, location, location. Exactly. (laughs) What matters is the relationships. And those relationships have been both with the folks who are decision makers or future decision makers within institutional clients. And I do a lot of university work too, so it's both commercial and academic. 
or their relationships with other attorneys in your community or for that matter elsewhere. A lot of my work, as I think is true of most attorneys, comes from referrals from other attorneys who know me in practice or other attorneys from an organization like the American College of Trial Lawyers, where I get referrals in one of two circumstances, either the fellow has a conflict and can't handle it, or the fellow is located elsewhere in the country and wants his client to have an attorney in the Northeast. Now, someone will say, well, that's great. That means you don't have to be on the rubber chicken circuit. You don't have to be doing a lot of teaching and lecturing. The answer to that is, no, that's incorrect because some of the relationships come from that setting. And if they don't come directly from running into you at the Bar Association dinner, they come from the person saying, oh, hey, you know what? I have this case I need to refer out because I don't have the expertise. I didn't even think about you, but you'd be perfect for it. So your face has to be out there all the time. So all of those things still remain applicable. But what actually brings in the business is the relationships. And how do you go about nurturing those relationships? What have you focused on over the years to make sure that those relationships stay positive? Well, as you know, it can take four years to get something through trial, at least in our jurisdiction. Yes. That's a lot of time to get to know the client. My clients in those long-term cases become my friends. So if they weren't my friend to start with, if I didn't already know them, and that isn't the reason they came to me, they become my friends and they stay my friends. So I'm still on the phone with them periodically. I'm still seeing them socially periodically. When they're in another part of the country, I make a point of letting them know when I'm going to be there and we get together and they do the same when they come to Boston. So it's much like continuing the friendships that you made in college or in law school. You keep them going because you care about the people because they're your friends. And that's how it continues. And then perhaps if they're older and they're going to be retiring, but they're in-house at an institutional client, they're going to make sure that you know the person who is succeeding them and you will develop those relationships. It can't be faked, by the way. I mean, you actually have to care about these people. And if they become your friends, then the long-term nature of the relationship is inevitable. And if it's someone who you genuinely don't like, and that happens from time to time, then you don't do that nurturing because that's not a relationship you want to continue. Mm -hmm. One thing I've learned over the years is you can't win a case if you don't believe your client and believe in your client. So if that is the case and you feel you either have to hand it off, that sometimes happens, or you don't make an effort to keep the relationship alive. But in my experience, that's extremely rare because at their core, most people are good. And if you find the good in each other in the trying times that litigation naturally engenders. Yes, ma'am. And you will be friends and that relationship will go on and you will care when their children graduate from college, when their first grandchild is born and so forth. I know you also love sports and you love to kayak and hike. Yes. I love the outdoors. I am very, very committed to the ocean. Kayaking is my release from every form of pressure, sorrow, 
unhappiness, anger, the world goes back to being in proper form when I've been out on the water for 45 or minutes or an hour. So, and that's why we have this place on the bay so that I can relieve whatever tension there is and come back in and be a mellower self. Although nobody will ever accuse me of being a mellow human being. (laughs) (laughs) And, and this love for kayaking, has that always been the case or have you sort of grown into finding an activity that does allow you to find your peace? I think it's very much the latter. I started kayaking when my daughter was four. So that's, you know, like 28 or nine years ago. And then some years ago, I got into the true ocean kayaking. It's amazing. It did develop over time. I wouldn't have told you 28 or nine years ago that I would thought I would have ended up being a serious ocean kayaker. But I love it. I love it on so many levels. There is no no second time that's just like another. Every single time out there is a unique experience. If you open your senses to it, that's why it's such a total release. It's an amazing thing. And by the way, if it's a seasonally appropriate thing to do, I plan my openings and closings while I'm kayaking. (laughs) (laughs) I have really learned over the years that you do need to find something that makes you happy individually, that you can do and go back to in order to find that release, to find that peace and to center yourself. Would you encourage our listeners to do whatever they need to do to find that? Oh, absolutely. Law is an intense profession, and we all know the old expression that the law is a jealous mistress. You have to force yourself to separate because the work is never going to be done. It's not going to be a matter of running out of work. You need to find a way to separate yourself from the intensity of ongoing practice to do something that you find true pleasure in that is a real release for stress and tensions for you and that you can look forward to. I will do that because I know that it's necessary not just to my physical health and well-being, keeping myself in condition, but to my mental health and well-being. So I really do encourage everybody, figure out what it is. For a lot of my friends here in New England, it's skiing. I have some friends for whom it's parasailing. There are others like me for whom it's kayaking. Some love to run. Many here in these suburban and small towns, like the one I'm in, love biking. You just have to figure out which one it is for you because everyone has something that will be their true release. I know you've spent time, Joan, over the years mentoring and sponsoring young attorneys, and I'm sure each and every one of them is extremely grateful for the time that you've given. What have you seen the biggest mistakes being made by young attorneys? I think for young attorneys, it's very hard to know that there is an appropriate place to draw the line and to develop a proper work-life balance. And this is for men and women, not just women. There is a competitiveness among most young attorneys. I think people who are drawn to the law are generally by nature very competitive. If you drop them into a setting that encourages that, as law firms often do, then they can lose track of the rest of their life, the rest of their being, and focus all of their time on practicing law. And those are the people who will burn out. And if they happen to have families 
they will cause disruption in their families by not giving enough of their love and attention to their family members. So for me, one of the most important things is to encourage people to be home at a reasonable hour and be sure to take vacations. You need to train yourself to take some time to just revitalize yourself. And that's a mistake that a lot of not only young lawyers, but older lawyers make too. Those are the people who burn out, the ones who force themselves to find the right solutions and then live by their commitments to themselves and their loved ones will not burn out and will have nice long careers. I love that because you're right. It fits whether you're advising young lawyers, mid-career or more mature lawyers, finding Mm -hmm. time for yourself and recognizing when you are beginning to burn out has got to be one of the hardest things I think to do. But if you're consistent in sticking to your boundaries about your vacations and your work hours, I think that does go a long way to helping all of us sustain a long and prosperous career. Absolutely. Speaking of long and prosperous, tell (laughs) us what your future plans are. I want to know. Well, I anticipate continuing to practice law for many more years, I hope. I hope to do it on a more flexible basis as we move into the future, in part because we all learned during the pandemic that law can be practiced on a flexible basis. My firm, my colleagues, and the folks at my opposing firms or my co-counsel firms all managed to practice law very successfully just in new places. So I perceive myself practicing law with much of my time in summer months being spent where I am right now, sitting, looking out at the bay. So I hope to be practicing law, making all the time that's necessary in the office, but recognizing that all the time doesn't have to be in the office and being able to be in places I love with my family. I hope to spend more and more time with my little grandson who's three years old but I'm not going to take away from the practice of law. I'm still going to be practicing full time. I'm just going to be doing it at different hours and different places as circumstances allow. And when it's time to be in court, I'll be there. I think it is very possible that learning that we can practice law remotely, that we can be efficient and effective and competent doing that, is that one of the things that you're taking away from this? I think it is fair to say that we were so fortunate to be at a technological level that it was entirely possible to remove ourselves from our physical offices into our homes or other places where we could do the same work in a different setting. But I think we have learned that it's time to move on to a new way of practicing law, and we can do it. Well, Joan, thank you so much for spending some of your precious time with us today. I can tell you I've so much enjoyed hearing your stories and your advice. I am certainly better off from having had this conversation and appreciate very much you sharing it with our listeners. Thank you, Amy. It's really been a pleasure. I've enjoyed doing it. Good luck with the podcast series. I think it's a great idea. That's part of what we were talking about, the new technology, moving forward and doing it in a new way. Glad to help and let me know if I can ever be of assistance in the future. Thank you.
Thank you, everyone, for listening in another episode of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast. Our goal of this series is to educate and elevate our listeners' personal and professional lives. And I know that listening to Joan today has helped accomplish that goal. So please continue to tune in. I'm Amy Gunn, and I look forward to bringing another enlightening guest to you on our next episode. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.